You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 5th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Aloha. And Evan Bernstein. Happy Cinco de Marcho. <laughs> Cinco de Marcho. Jay, welcome back up. from Hawaii. Yeah, Jay. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jay. It's good to have you back. It's my annual annual vacation to a warm place. Nice. How was the Maui Wowie? I didn't go to Maui. I was in Kauai. He doesn't have a clever rhyme for that. <laughs> Are you still on your Kauai high? You know um. how it is. I mean... <laughs> It's so dreamlike when you're on vacation, especially to a beautiful place like Hawaii. Then you get on the 12-hour plane ride coming home, and you go through the whole airport hell. And I actually, they lost my luggage, and then come uh, home, and the weather sucks, and you go back to work the first day, and you're literally, you know, looking for the gun. You're just like, no. <laughs> well, that's a real cheery wrap up there. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. Jay. But I could talk about the good stuff. Tell us about your investigations. All right. Well, just so you know, Kauai is the probably the most uh, lush of the islands. And uh, other than just having a fantastic time and everything, I I did uh, meet a lot of locals. There's a lot of locals to meet on that island. And I asked a lot of questions. The only thing I could dig up on Kauai, you will actually find anywhere people like to go vacation. What I did do is I went on a tour of a timeshare. And this wasn't my first time doing it. I usually do it when I go on a vacation if I think that what they're going to give me is worth it. Like, you know, a lot of times they'll give you vouchers for, you know, the trips that you can go on or you can get, you know, just flat out cash or sometimes you'll get um, an extension on the hotel you're staying at. I mean, there's a million different things that they do. But what I decided to do was go on the tour more for the SGU than for what I got because I only got about maybe... 50 bucks worth of value out of it. And it took an hour and a half. So, you know, I go, I did it. I already knew about timeshares. I knew about the scam. There was no chance of me falling for it. And to quickly go over it, there's three kinds of timeshares. There are legitimate ones that are actually good. Um, good meaning that you're not going to get ripped off. The properties are, are, are good quality. They're maintained well. And you probably can trade you know, your place or the week that you bought, like let's say you, you, you do a timeshare where you're purchasing one week out of the year that you want to stay in uh, some place in Mexico, right? Some hotel that you like in Mexico. It's possible that just purchasing that week at that place can get you into other hotels all over the world. And that's the, the basic concept is you're buying like one or two weeks of uh, 52 weeks, right? So you're paying a portion or a very small portion of the overall cost of the entire property. Or you buy points and those points buy you the week. You could buy enough points to buy two weeks or say it's a really, really uh, awesome resort. Then, you know, those two weeks of points of, you know, Hotel A will only buy you one week in Hotel B. So anyway, so there's a quality ones that, that you can trust that are good. There's also the incredibly overpriced ones that are a total ripoff. And typically these are the ones that, you know, the properties are probably still good, but they're just flat out overpriced and it's not worth it. It's not worth putting the money in. And then there's the fraud ones. And in my opinion, most timeshares are borderline overpriced slash a fraud because once it's too overpriced, basically it is a fraud. It's not a bad idea to do the, the timeshare if the vacation will roughly cost you what it would cost to just vacation there anyway, right? 
that makes sense. If it's a little bit more expensive, but you know you get some perks being in the timeshare, that's cool. And maybe you can still trade that week for some other places around the world. That would work out too. But here is a bunch of reasons um, that you shouldn't purchase the timeshare, and this is where the scam comes in. One of the things that they that they tell you is this is a really good financial investment. Pretty much across the board, no timeshare is worth the money you put into it as far as an investment goes. It's worth paying as a vacation, but it's not worth the actual – it's not an investment that you will make money on. No way, no no chance. I don't buy it. I've never seen it. I've never heard anyone say it. And if anything, everyone I've known in my life that's bought a timeshare tried to sell it and couldn't, or if they did, they lost their shirt. You also – another thing that they do is they'll say, you'll make a lot of money renting it out. Well, you probably won't because if I can rent a room in that same hotel that you, you bought a timeshare in for equal cost, you're not going to make any more money. It's it's pretty straight out obvious. Or if they tell you um, that you easily can resell or even make a profit from buying it, like they say the whole, you buy it at this price, that price is locked in, and then in 10 years you sell it and you're going to make a profit. Uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Or they'll tell you that um, the company will buy the timeshare back from you. And sometimes for a profit. No way that never happens. And, you know, I just never heard any stories or read anything that said, yeah, the company actually bought it back and it was no problem. Usually when they start getting into that technique, that's a lie. That's an out and out lie when they start getting into those uh, things that I just listed. Other things that they do very, very well, and I don't care what timeshare you go to, typically the salesmen are some of the slickest salesmen that you'll, you'll come in contact with. One thing that they do, which is very strange, is that most of these timeshare salesmen can write and read perfectly upside down. And they're trained to do that so they never turn away um, any of the brochures or any of the stuff that they're using, uh, the materials, to sell you the property. And it's just a weird thing that I've noticed, and I actually looked it up and found out that that's one of the traits that these timeshare salesmen have. Another thing that they do... So, so they always have the brochure in your face upright to you, and they do all their reading and writing uh, upside down to them. They, it's like a workbook. It's like a workbook. So they have like a workbook where they're like, look at the pricing, and then they show you, and they do all these calculations, and then they're writing math upside down. They're reading oh. off the brochure upside down. And it's huh. it's... It's just like, wow, how, how slicked out are these guys? Like, you just think, what, how long do you have to train to do this? How long would you have to you know, be involved in this? Or what kind of training program do they put these people through in order to be able to behave like this? It's obviously worth um, the investment for them, so it must be the whole shebang yeah. is profitable. And just to, just to emphasize, too, one of the scams is that they lure you in with some freebies. Yeah, the price. But, but then once they get you there, you're like a prisoner to the high-pressure sale. Right, and then they do not want to let you go until they make a sale. And again, obviously, it's profitable to them, so they must be selling enough to offset whatever freebies they're giving out. Yeah, sounds a little cultish to me. I would. S- I've heard people actually say that I was prisoner there for hours; they wouldn't let us go. I've never been prisoner for an, for the hours routine. They definitely do like the bait and hook type of thing. They get you in with whatever it is that they promise. Now, there's bait and switch. There's timeshares that flat out say you're going to get a flat panel TV and you don't get the flat panel TV. You get some other piece of junk or a small crappy TV. Or they, they do the thing where they make you think that you're getting the main prize, but you get the, the second or third prize. It's like the Cupid doll thing. You're not, you need to win these 10 Cupid dolls and then you'll get the big one or whatever. Okay, it's, it's like a carnival, carnival game. The typical sales routine is that you, you're greeted by someone. They either will start with a tour of the property or they'll um, they'll give you like a, a some type of sales pitch about the timeshare industry, you know, just to let you know this is what timeshares are, and they, you know, then there's 
some type of seminar where they either sit you down in a room full of people and they feed you and give you some you know drinks and stuff, and they just have like a really slicked out guy or girl come up and just do some wicked sales pitch and get you all kind of hyped up and excited, and then they bring you down to the salesman, the the, the person that's going to um, that's going to really tr- try to make the sale, and this is the person that you become very friendly with. So in my experience, I was always able to get past this person and then they bring in the high strung really hard sell manager you know so they bring out the better salesman and this guy always 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 does the wicked high pressure like how could you not do this like you already just said you know they collect all this information from you how much do you spend a year on vacationing you know what would it cost if if you you know went to all these different resorts you know you couldn't afford these other resorts and they kind of trick you uh, with math and quick numbers and quick talk into thinking, wow, how could I not do this, you know? The, the psychological trick there, too, is they try to make you seem inconsistent. So the, the, these uh, these sales techniques are actually based upon legitimate psychological principles. People have a fear of seeming inconsistent to other people. So they'll tell you, how much do you spend on vacation a year? So you're telling me you're, you're you will not spend less, you will not save money, why would you do that? So then you have to sound like an idiot and just to avoid sounding like an idiot you'll go along with the sale this is how I got out of the one I just went on first of all the property was okay it wasn't that good so when we got in there and we knew okay we're going to give up this hour and a half um, and we were trying to actually have some fun with the person we were hoping to get a really high pressured salesman but this person that took us on the tour and everything she was actually really nice and she just started asking us the typical questions. How much do you spend? Where do you like to travel? And she gives us the book, and you see these thousand hotels that you can pick from. And then I just flat out told her at one point, I said, you know what? I don't like this property. I really don't like it here. It's actually nowhere near. It's not as good as the place we're staying. Well, where are you staying? Well, I told her, we're renting a house. And, and I said, so what?" before I told her what I paid, and she asked, I said, before I tell you, you tell me how much it's going to cost me to, t- to buy this timeshare ah, here. So she said, well, nice. and she does all this, does the numbers, writing upside down with a, with a highlighter and doing all this stuff. And then she's like, well, it'll be $250 a night. And I said, we're renting a $10 million house for $6,000 a week, split up by three, and sometimes we travel with four couples, and we're paying about $230 a night or $236 a night per couple. I said... You know, it's. I said it's a ten million dollar house on Hawaii, and it's only costing each couple this amount of money. We have a private bedroom, a private bathroom, a really nice room, a full awesome kitchen in a house that has its own yard right on the beach. Like I said, it's actually. Were you lying? No, it's the truth. It's that's true. We'll do the math. Bash it. Why don't you invite me? <laughs> yeah, seriously, Jay. Why aren't we doing this podcast one. from that we'll place? Do, you know, if you do the math, and and this is actually a good a good thing that I am telling everyone, do, do it. Rent a house in these beautiful places, you know, and make sure that you're you're picking good neighborhoods and everything. But most of the times, especially if you're going to Hawaii, like it, it'd be hard. You look online, you see the house, like you could see that it's on the beach. You could see pictures of it on the inside. I mean, that's how we pick these houses, and it it totally is worth it because you're alone. You have a whole house to yourself. So I told her that very quick story about how, the beautiful house that we're renting, and she goes, "Well, can you just sit here with me for another like forty minutes so I don't get in trouble?" With my boss. Oh, jeez. Like, we we totally derailed her to the point where she didn't even, like, bring in the manager or anything. Because she knew, that, look, these people know how to vacation. They know what they're doing. They know how to get value out of it. You know, we, we had it together. But listen to this. There was an old couple sitting next to us. And we heard the guy actually say, we will finance the timeshare for you. 
and we will we'll charge you seventeen and a half percent on it. And I was like, "Wow, did you hear that? That they're gonna they're gonna actually or the guy eat, and then and and I'm I'm not exaggerating. The guy actually said that we'll do one of those um, interest only loans. And if you don't know what that is, it's a loan that you only pay the interest on the loan. You never pay the principal down. So it's a hundred percent profit for the company. Now you have an old couple that would could easily be quick talked, wow. easily think, oh, and I can give it to my kids and stuff. Which you know a lot of times." They say things like that during the sales pitch, but it's not in the contracts. And these people don't even don't don't know until it's too late, or they die, or whatever happens, and it doesn't get passed. Well, part of what they do, one of the other sales techniques that they use is called getting you down to your final objection. And it's another um, psychological ploy that they do is they try to get you to say, "All right, what's the one thing that's keeping you from making this sale?" And and most people will say, "All right, just to get out of it, I'll say I would do this except for this one thing, except for." You know, I, I want to be able to pass it down to my kids. Then they take away that final objection. Whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, they will, sit, they will just say, okay, we'll fix that. We'll take away that one last objection. Now you have no objections left. Now you have to admit that you were lying in order to say you still don't want it. And most people or a lot of people will not do that. That psychological pressure works on, often enough. So that's probably what they were doing with that couple is, is my point. Oh, sure. And Steve, to be honest with you, I think people really are talked into these things against their will most of the people you, you know and they another quickie thing that they do and I could just keep talking about this but one one thing that they do noticed. is they fake the sale they actually like have a fake couple come in and you know and they always open like a little bottle of champagne when someone wins and they have they have plants in there they have people that they've put in yeah. there oh yeah and the you know the Jones just just bought a timeshare then all the the um, people stand up and start clapping you know all the employees stand up and start clapping congratulations and they make this big whoop de doo about it you know and they, you're right Steve it's constant pressure constant psychological manipulation right um, always be closing what's that come on I said always be closing. Come on. Yeah, that's no right. Um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yep. You guys now listen, suck. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Al Pacino. So, guys, on a side note, and very funny, talking about trying to resell your timeshare, there were uh, all these places where you could buy shave ice. They call it shave ice. Um, Italian ice? They, you know, these people own shave ice machines. It's not really Italian ice. It's shaved ice. They put a block of ice in this machine, and they shave it up, and they, they just put different flavors in. It's really good. You know, it's like a, I guess it's like a common tourist treat. But check this out. All of these shave ice places on Kauai, it's like shave ice and timeshare resales. Like these little booths actually resell the timeshares and you go up to the booth and you order your shave ice and you flip through this little book and it has like, you know, a hundred or two hundred of the uh, timeshares for resale. That's how pathetic it is. Oh, wow. God. Is and um, I took a picture. Nice. I took a picture of one of my favorite ones that I, I went to a couple of times. But that is, is that's a good example of how ridiculous these timeshares wow. are. Wow. Shaved ice shaved and ice. resell your timeshare. Yep. <laughs> In one booth, I don't get it's it. It's like buying. It's like buying insurance from the hot dog salesman. Well, I think what right. they're doing is they're trying to sell you other people's timeshares yeah. that they are pathetically trying to dump. Yeah, right. You know? Oh uh, man, I bet you get some good deals. Well, especially if you order like the special flavor of the day, right? Yeah, yeah. Like pineapple or coconut. Yeah. How much for the shave ice? Three fifty. Well, how much for this house right here? This <laughs> this condo comes yeah. with the free shaved ice. <laughs> Three fifty. <laughs> it comes with this. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back to reality. Like I said, 
But there are reputable companies out there. You could get it, you could get good deals at good properties and everything. But buyer beware. Be very careful with these timeshares. And I'd say overall, um, unless you, you're very good with math and you, you, you know what's going on and you know what you're being presented, don't even bother going on it. But if you can do it, you know what? You actually can get some good stuff and some free stuff, money and, and – uh, tours and you know go on whatever like a boat tour and stuff like that they, they they'll give you these things you get stuff for free and you can even ask for more stuff if you can handle it go ahead and do it and do it every vacation you go on because if you if you're smart you can get out quick and, and get a value out of it and do your homework what we need to do is start a multi-level marketing timeshare scam <laughs> with, re- with um, some type of religion involved steve <laughs> <laughs> well let's move on thanks for that report jay yeah, Jay. Holy and welcome back. I almost forgot there is one brief in memoriam this week. The world did lose a tremendous intellectual, a person that was mm. very important in all of our lives. Gary Gygax passed away this past week. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. You heard about that? You heard about it from me, you nerds. Yeah. And if you don't know who me. Gary Gygax is, you know, it's just, it's not worth explaining. But for those of you who do, but for those of you who do, we mourn with you. All right, let's go on to the next news item. Enough said. <laughs> no, enough said. Let's just say he rolled an 11 when he needed a 13 oh, to survive. Careful, Rebecca. You don't know what you're Rebecca, talking about. Yeah, don't even try. Don't even try. <laughs> don't go there, Rebecca. Rolled an 11. Because if, if, <laughs> the, the if the bulk of the male SGU panel here has any sacred cow, it's Gary Gygax. Okay? Oh. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm just... Just trying to help our listeners understand what's happened here. Google him, Gary and Gygax. Evan, about Jesus. Jesus saves. <laughs> it only takes half yeah. the <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. yeah, Jesus saves right. is on the front side of the T-shirt, and on the back side of the T-shirt is, it only takes half yep. damage. Again, total inside joke, but hilarious if you get it. And no woman ever sees what's underneath the T-shirt. <laughs> 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 God, you know what? I missed you guys so much. I feel like I've been out of it for a long, long time. You have been. I mean, yes, we missed you too. Bob, can you please explain to us why yeah. NASA is baffled? Scientists are baffled. Yeah. I, I love anomalies in physics. You would think that the relatively straightforward aspects of space probe missions involving something like velocity would be pretty well all ironed out by now. For, ne- for years now, though, we've known of probes with velocities that we cannot explain. This may eventually lead to an obscure and mundane explanation, but it could also lead to new physics. It started in 1980. Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist John Anderson noticed something strange about the Pioneer 11 space probe launched in the early 70s. It was not where it was supposed to be. For each year of travel in the outskirts of our solar system, it covered a vast distance that was off by an amount equal to the width of the United States, about 3,000 miles, which is, percentage-wise, that's not much, but considering how accurate we are with these things, it it was huge and completely unexplained. A similar anomaly was occurring at the other end of the solar system with with the Pioneer 11 probe. Now, nothing that Anderson and his colleagues looked at, whether it was the spacecraft behavior itself or or what the the solar system was like at the outskirts there, uh, could explain this small but undeniable deceleration of these craft. Finally, in uh, 1998, he went public with the announcement, and uh, to this day, there's no definitive explanation for this anomaly. This doesn't mean that he didn't try, though. For years, he he looked at every conceivable variable that he could look at. 
Um, he looked at errors in computation. Of course, there could be a simple error in computation. Um, but seven independent analyses have shown the same effect. What about drag? Maybe there's some sort of unusual drag uh, from the interplanetary medium, including dust or solar wind or cosmic rays. But the densities uh, that, that do exist out there are too small to cause the effect. Um, what about gravitational forces? He looked at the gravitational forces from, say, the Kuiper Belt or, dark, or even dark matter, but they didn't pan out either. Then this past week, there have been more press releases about other space probes that have been showing anomalies. This time, it's with the probes not at the edge of the solar system, but right by Earth as they fly by for gravitational assists, sometimes to save money so they don't have to you know, launch that you know, probes with so much fuel. They, they, they loop the probes around and around, and they come back to actually come back to Earth to get a gravitational assist or to, or to maybe to tweak their trajectory to save, to save money, to save fuel. And of course, it adds... Like a slingshot, right? Yeah, it, it adds. It adds. It could add years to the uh, to their journeys. But hey, you know, it, it saves money. Um, so six of these probes have, have been studied, including the Galileo's one and two, uh, the the near probe Rosetta and Cassini and Messenger. Five of them showed that they were either slowed down or accelerated a little bit more than expected when they got close to Earth. Again, it was John Anderson and his colleagues that did that did much of these uh, initial investigations. And uh, for years now, uh, they've been trying to figure out what's going on with these so-called flyby anomalies. Uh, they looked at measuring error. Uh, that didn't pan out because the, the, Doppler, the Doppler shift that they use for the radio waves bouncing off the craft has a very minute um, error. It's only plus or minus 0.1 millimeters, but the effect they were seeing was in the range of, say, 4 millimeters per second uh, difference. So this couldn't explain it. Uh, they looked at frame dragging. Uh, now, that's actually, that's what I initially thought when I read about these flyby anomalies. I thought, well, maybe fr frame dragging could explain this. This frame dragging occurs when you've got, for example, say, the, or the rotating Earth actually dragging space-time along with it. I thought maybe that could actually explain the acceleration as it's, as it's approaching, Earth, approaching the Earth. But they, they actually looked into this, and they discounted it because the frame dragging would be far too weak to explain uh, the, the discrepancies that they were seeing. So this is a really big mystery. Recently, Anderson and his buddies discovered an equation. They discovered by total serendipity an equation that duplicates these anomalies with the flybys. It, it explains these fly, flybys in terms of the trajectory of the probes as they approach the Earth and then as they leave the Earth with respect to the um, the plane of, the, uh, of Earth's eclipse, of uh, Earth's... Equator. It sounds like what you're saying is they described it mathematically, but they haven't explained why it happens. Yeah. Exactly. They, they they could predict them very very close to the to the actual measurements, but they still don't know why. They they just explain it so that hey that might figure in that might sure. help them actually discover the real reason. But wait, and it I helps, have a question. But it's um, it's not. <laughs> I, I'm wondering the the mathematical. Uh, formula they came up with. Did they come up with that before they noticed these discrepancies, and the, and this happens to match it, or was it created specifically to address those discrepancies? Yes, the the latter. They as, as they were trying to figure out what was going on, they said, well, maybe it has to do with the way they approach the Earth, and uh, they they came up with the with the with these equations to. Oh, okay, so so it's really not even that. described by mathematics at this point, since that's a like a post hoc sort of. Uh, formula is drawn up to explain it, but it hasn't been. Uh, yeah, I don't. Know, I don't know the details of the equation, but it does. It does explain all 
all, all five of these flybys very well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like it, the cosmological but, constant. It's a fudge factor. You put it in there, and, right. and it, if it accounts for uh, for the difference. In this, this, this is not a constant. It's actually an equation because it's more dynamic. But, uh, but, it, but right. again, we, it, it doesn't tell us anything about the, the theoretical underpinnings of it. Although, right. of course, it makes sense that, that it would give us a clue. I, I'm assuming from what you're telling me, Bob, that the formula itself it was didn't didn't produce a eureka moment where it's like, hey, this is this formula. So now we know exactly where it's coming from. They still they still don't know, you know, what uh, the source of it is. Right, I, and I've got just a couple more points to make. Um, with this one. So the, the next question, an obvious question I think should be, is there a connection between the pioneer anomaly and the flyby anomalies? And the answer is it depends who you ask. Anderson would, says that he would, he would be surprised if radio tracking of a spacecraft had revealed two completely independent anomalies. I suspect they are connected somehow, he says. Uh, but Peter and Triason, who was a spacecraft navigation expert at JPL, doesn't think uh, that there's doesn't think that there's a connection. He thinks that the um, that they're different enough that they that they're probably different. And he said whatever causes this anomaly seems to make its impact just a few minutes before the closest approach to Earth regarding the the flyby an- anomaly. And then uh, lastly, does this point to new physics? And again, this de- it depends on on who you ask. Peter and Trace and ab- that I mentioned above believes that it will require a modified law of gravity or other new physics to explain it. But then you've got somebody like Miles Standish um, who calculates trajectories um, of solar system bodies for JPL, and he, he says that um, he feels the Earth flyby anomaly is almost certainly due to an error in measurement or an incomplete analysis using ordinary physics. But he threw out a quote here that I, that I don't agree with. He said, an analogy, he said that it's like a farmer in Louisiana seeing a light in the sky and immediately screaming UFO. Now, that's, that's an interesting point, and that does, regarding UFOs and lots of paranormal phenomena, that does, that's exactly what happens, and that's a big problem with a lot of these phenomena is that, is that people immediately jump to a paranormal conclusion without knocking down all the mundane things that science requires that you do. But I, I don't think this is a good analogy in this case because this, these people have been studying this for literally decades, for many, yeah. many years. They've, they've knocked down lots and lots of, of these mundane possibilities, and they, have, they haven't made any progress in, in uh, coming up with an answer. So I think after such an effort, I think you can – you can start thinking, all right, you know, is there some new physics involved that nobody is, you know, claiming this 20 years ago? I have, you know, only recently have they started to say maybe there's some new physics. And I think it's valid to actually start, you know, looking around and, and trying to t- looking at it from that angle at this point. With the current equations and the way that they understand how this slowdown happens, can they adjust for that? It's it's consistent for the data that they have, say for the pioneer for the pioneer anomaly. Um, the thing is, though, a lot of the data, like the first twenty years of the data uh, for the, for the pioneers, were uh, have been sitting around gathering dust in these old uh, f- uh, media formats. They're, they're obsolete, so they actually had to raise a lot of money. Uh, millions of dollars, in fact, to uh, to actually get this data and get it into one format for the entire history of the of the pioneer uh, probes, all you know, whatever thirty years or so of the probes, and that that process is ongoing, and I think it should be done fairly soon. And that would that might be the answer to the question. If you could study the pioneer probes from their launch till we lost contact with them, it might be very helpful. Uh, it shed some new light on these. Yeah, uh, on these let, me, let me make a, let me make a couple of points too, Bob. So just to follow up on what Jay was saying, but we haven't had a chance to to test 
the, uh, the their fudge formula going forward. When you apply it retrospectively to existing data sets, it it it, it explains the the difference between what we expect and what we're seeing. But we we have yet to right. use this to predict where a probe is going to be right in the future. That will be the ultimate test, and I don't know if that... There's talks of actually launching a probe to address this issue specifically. Now, the other, wow. the other point was I think that the, the paranormal ana- uh, analogy would be apt if someone were saying that the solution to this anomaly is space ghosts. Right, there are obviously ghosts out in space pushing on these probes. <laughs> that is the actual. That's the equivalent ghosts. of what the ghost hunters are doing. They, space they see an, ghost. Sorry. Yeah, they see they see an anomaly, <laughs> and they declare it is an alien or a ghost or a cryptozoological creature right. or whatever. And but these guys are going through the process. They're going. They're as you said. They're laboriously ruling out things that we know right. of, and then they're just hypothesizing about what kind of thing could explain the. And then they'll test those hypotheses. So they're not doing what the ghost hunters do, which is leap from anomaly to ghosts. Right. And the, and that was a point I was going to bring up because this is this is what real scientists do with anomalies. Absolutely, and that's why I did I disagreed with that comment of that it's like a Louisiana farmer seeing a light and saying UFO. It's it's not. I don't think it that's wasn't a good fair. analogy. Yeah. It might have been a good analogy. Yeah, it's not fair. In 1980, if if Anderson looked at this and said, "Oh, this must be new physics," yeah, without a, without looking at a leaking gas tank, um, so many possibilities that he's discounted. And it sounds like we're still left with three broad types of errors that we could be seeing. Either this is a, a mathematical type of a problem, but it sounds like that's the easiest one to eliminate, and that's been pretty well eliminated, uh, although it's hard to say it's been eliminated 100%. Or it's astronomical. It's something about the physical solar system, that, that the space that these probes are moving through that we don't fully understand yet. Or it's physical. Right. It's something wrong with the physics, like gravity, and we need actually a more... A more right. subtle description of, of of gravity in order to to accommodate this anomaly, which would be exactly how you know we discovered the need for general relativity was because of anomalies in the orbit of Mercury, for example. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think a, another option, Steve, is um, the the probe itself. Some weird interaction right. between various components of the probe might 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 be causing this effect. Something that's not readily apparent um, mm-hmm. to these scientists. So that that's an that's an option as well. Right. Um, okay, let's go on to the next news item. This one having to do with aromatherapy. Now, aromatherapy has been around for a while. This is basically a brand or a, a category of snake oil in which um, substances which have a specific odor, usually a pleasant odor, is said to have therapeutic effects, hence aromatherapy. And like much of uh, much of these types of, of these uh, products, never really subjected to rigorous scientific testing. Now, before we get into this, can we get all the puns out of the way? Like, you know, <laughs> this smells fishy to me. Right, right. Anyone else? It smells like BS? Yeah, but it's out of our system now. All right, go ahead. Recently, research at the Ohio State University conducted a, you know, one of the, one of the really only scientifically rigorous studies that I've seen on uh, aromatherapy. And uh, what they did was they looked to see if there was any physiological effects from smelling different allegedly aromatherapeutic scents. Lemon oil was one, and lavender was the other one. Um, which is, you know, it, with um, with medical studies, if you're if you're studying the response to an intervention, you could 
you to look for the net clinical effect. You know, what did it, what, what did it make you this disease process better or this symptom better? Or you could look at um, and/or because they're not mutually exclusive. You could look at physiological responses. Is it doing something physically to the body that we can measure? This study was focused on the physiological effects, not any you know, a net clinical effect. And what they found was that uh, there weren't any. <laughs> Basically, there was no physiological effects. All the things that they chose to measure... Surprise. All, you know, a lot of, all the typical physiological parameters uh, were not affected and uh, by either of these odors. And it also didn't matter if, if you were a believer in aromatherapy or not a believer in aromatherapy. The sense didn't alter physiology. Even when... Um, some of the volunteers, the subjects in the study, felt that they were getting a clinical effect. They felt that their mood was elevated or whatever. There still wasn't any measurable physiological effect. I think we need to lump this in with uh, feng shui under things that might be nice in some regard, but don't actually have magical powers. Like feng shui can make your house look nice, but probably won't bring you riches and uh, that aromatherapy candle smells delicious, but it's not going to cure right. your cancer. That's right. I'm not sure that they're necessarily claiming that. Whatever is there, I mean, don't don't they keep it very generic about these kind of claims with things like aromatherapy makes you just feel better and it makes you, you know, more relaxed. And well, some uh, of it, some of it's a lot like the feng shui. Actually, like this candle will bring you good. Fortune, promote healing, or it'll you know. get you in that mindset. Yeah, promoting healing. Yeah, BS stuff like that. But a lot of it oriented, Evan. You were right. Aromatherapy specifically is very. Uh, a lot of the claimed effects are are in the mood arena rather than more the biological arena. Probably because odors do carry you know emotions with them. Um, our olfactory system is just uh, evolutionarily tied um, very closely to the memory part of our brain, the limbic system, and especially the memory of feelings and emotions. That's why I'm sure we've all had this experience. An odor can suddenly bring back not only a, yeah, not only a memory, but the Trigger feelings that go along with that memory, you know? So that's probably why aromatherapy, you know, has the following that it does. But uh, any claims to any any real physiological effects are not backed by anything scientific. And so far, this study included the, 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 any, any attempt to rigorously look to see if there's any effect has come up negative. Uh, the next news item, now this is a pseudo-political item. You know, we are an educational organization, and uh, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is, you know, we're all about uh, science education. That's what we talk about. But we have we do cover issues that intersect with politics and religion and sociology and other things like that. Um, we we never endorse candidates or get into purely political discussions. We try to be as politically neutral as we can be. But and I'm saying this to preface this issue because this is about one of the candidates in the American. Uh, uh, election that's going on right now, a, and this has been. You know, but every science blogger that I read commented on this, including myself, of course. John McCain, when when thrown a question recently about autism and vaccines, actually uh, made some very very um, unscientific comments. He said, and he's quoted by ABC News as saying, "It's indisputable." that autism is on the rise amongst children. The question is what's causing it, and we go back and forth, and there's strong evidence that indicates that it's got to do with the preservative in vaccines. 
Oh boy! Wrong and wrong. Actually, it's Shit. both On of those both levels. the factual Ouch. scientific claims that were made in that statement were actually incorrect. Uh, it is not indisputable that autism is on the rise that requires clarification the number of diagnoses is increasing but the evidence and the consensus of opinion is that this is because of increased surveillance and increased spectrum of the diagnosis we've broadened the definition and we're looking for it more so we're finding it more but when you do studies that are designed to answer the question is the true rate of autism rising the answer appears to be no that the true rate is actually pretty pretty stable over time so that's wrong and of course this is an issue that i've written about and we've talked about on this podcast many times there is uh, no credible evidence that there's any link between vaccines uh, or thimerosal, the preservative in, in some vaccines, and autism. And uh, McCain doesn't seem to be aware of, just of the fact that thimerosal was basically removed from all routine childhood vaccines by 2002. And we talked about the fact that removing it from vaccines did not cause a decrease in uh, autism rates. It didn't even cause a decrease in the in the rate of increase. So that... You know, unfortunately, it was just a scientifically incorrect you know, couple of statements made by uh, John McCain specifically. Now, I emailed, uh, the, I actually t- t- talked to somebody from the John McCain campaign on the phone and got the press email and sent in two actually um, formal requests for clarification um, on, the, on John McCain's position. And I have not received any response yet, and I have not found any press release or anything on the John McCain website. So there's been no clarifying statement made about that as of the time that we recorded this podcast. If I do get any response from the McCain campaign or one crops up somewhere, if they make a statement on their website or to somebody else, we'll do the follow-up and we'll let you know. And also, out of interest... And and just to be a little thorough, just to be to be fair, really, I checked out the other still two viable candidates in the uh, the, the current pre- American presidential election: Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, just to see what if they had anything to say about this issue. You know, you don't want to single anybody out. Now, Hillary Clinton, who you know, she is making health care. Um, a centerpiece of her campaign. So she had a lot to say, actually, about autism. Uh, but a lot of it is... Oh. Uh, and this is officially on her website. And this is like she has a position on it. And she's also spoken about it quite a bit. But she's focused a lot on healthcare delivery. Really? And we're going to give more you know, delivery of care to people with autism. And she also talks a lot about funding more research. And all of her statements that are on her website, she's actually got a lot to say about autism on her website, but all of her statements are, are reasonably scientific. She only said one thing, which I thought was inappropriate. And, and I thought this was probably pandering. And she wants to increase, um, expand research, but she specifically, specifically says that uh, we need to find out the cause of autism. We need to do research into the, cause, uh, the causes of autism, including possible environmental causes. Now, the, it, yeah. it's subtle. It's subtle. But so that, you know, knowing this issue inside and out the way I do, that's not accidental that you would put that statement in there. First of all, I think it's inappropriate for a, for a politician to be directing research at that level. 
Where we put our um, resources and our priorities, that's um, that's a political question. Are we going to prioritize research into autism versus something else? Absolutely. That's a political question. But scientists don't need politicians to tell them what questions to ask or where to look for the causes of autism. You know, scientists should decide if they should emphasize genetic versus environmental factors. But, if, but of course, there's a huge contingent of people in the, in the autism world, uh, especially a lot of grassroots you know, organizations who think that there are environmental causes. So the only real purpose to put that in there would be to pander to those individuals, in my opinion. So that was the only statement that she made that I thought was inappropriate. That's right. It protects herself later in case she's asked the direct question. She said, oh, well, I commented. Uh, this she, all she had to say was what did not contradict the consensus of scientific opinion. That was the only thing that stuck out for me. But now, Steve, say, they, say it is uh, Hillary and McCain and and they're going at it. Do you think she will pull pull that out of her bag of tricks and say, "Hey, McCain, look at that you look at this, you totally blew this. You totally missed the science, scientific consensus." I don't know, it'll on, be very uh, on, interesting on to see if she does on, because if she does that, then she's going to be isolating or alienating that whole segment that, right. that she may have been trying to, you know, softly right. Um, pander to a little bit there. So we'll see. Of course, this is why we want to have the science debate 2008, right? We, we want to have the candidates, yes. whoever yep. they end up being. Yep. Of course, it's already been decided that it's going to be McCain on the Republican side. It's still Barack um, Obama versus Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Uh, we want to put all these science questions to them, you know, give them an opportunity to clarify that. I mean, this, this is just another example of why, you know, our politicians need to be scientifically literate, need to have good science advisors, need to be up on the science. They don't make statements that contradict the Center for Disease Control and the American Academy of Pediatrics and basically the consensus of, uh, of world scientific opinion. Now, Barack Obama's right. statements on uh, autism actually were the most scientific of all the ones that I read. And uh, it's, it, just from reading it, 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 it seems mm. like his advisors, and or maybe even him personally, know what the scientific consensus of opinion is, and they state it. So, for example, he writes, as diagnostic criteria broaden and awareness increases, more cases of autism have been recognized across the country. That's exactly correct. And so he got that exactly correct. Wow. So that, so that, and, that, and he didn't say Good. much else about, yes, we're, about autism, except that yeah, we're going to do more funding and more resources. That's great. But the, state, the scientific statements that he did make were right on the money in terms of the scientific consensus. It, interesting. It's interesting to see how the different candidates handle such a very... A dense and controversial scientific issue, and I and I do think it does bring to the fore once again the need to have like a science debate among uh, the highest levels of politicians running for office. The public does need to keep our politicians honest in terms of uh, in terms of the science. You know, they can't come out, they can't start spouting off pseudoscientific nonsense or just completely contradict the consensus of scientific opinion as if they know something special. I think it's really. Uh, disheartening. It is. I was. It's very. It's a, it's, it, regardless it, of what your politics are, it's always disappointing to see a major politician make make a scientific gaffe like that. They should know better. The last thing we need is another scientifically illiterate <laughs> right, president. Right. You know. And again, just to be crystal clear, none of this is meant to either you know politically uh, either in, you know endorse or or be against any specific candidates. Just to specifically discuss the scientific issues. Well, let's move on to some of your questions and emails. Uh, actually, uh, quite a few of our listeners sent us an email alerting us to the fact that 
a uh, an online skeptical comic that goes by kectic.com, C-E-C-T-I-C.com. That is an acronym, we are told, although no disclosure as to what it stands for. And this is uh, written by an SGU listener, actually, but it goes by the name of Rudis, R-U-D-I-S. And uh, the latest one, actually it's no longer the latest one, but it was at the time, uh, features yours truly in the, in the comic. And looking good. And yeah, actually, yeah, that, I like the actually cartoonish drawing of me. I thought you, you captured it pretty well. So take a look. Uh, it's it's a, you know, it's an online skeptical comic. What's not to love? And uh, thanks, Rudis, for for keeping us in mind. Yeah, I'm going through, and and uh, he he does some pretty funny stuff in here. It's good. He does indeed, and I believe he posts on our forum as well. So if people check out the comic and like it, you should sign up to the forum and say hello. Right. The uh, next email comes from Rory O'Connor from Ireland, and Rory writes, Hey guys, love the show. It has helped me to greatly improve my bullshit detector, or perhaps woo detector is more appropriate. Anyway, I was wondering if you could take a look at this article. It's kind of sad. Is any of this true? Are the ice caps of Mars really melting? Maybe you could point out the logical fallies. Thanks, and keep up the great work. P.S. Oh, I'm not even going to read the P.S. Never mind. Um, well, yes. Is Rebecca single? Oh God! As if, as if that's a big mystery. <laughs> Define single. <laughs> Define single. Ha, ha, ha. God, don't even come on, guys. You guys are a hoop. Oh, we have fun, Bob. Tell us about global warming on Mars. Well, I read, I read the article that Rory linked, and um, it was really. Not the focus of the article. It's really just a throwaway comment. The bulk of the article dealt with a, a teacher at a, at a high school that is um, in, in his attempt to uh, offer all sides of the global warming uh, uh, controversy, quote unquote. He uh, he played um, Al Gore's in, in Inconvenient Truth, and a lot of the parents complained. Uh, one of the parents' dad, uh, his name is Mark Colley, said that uh, we may be contributing one percent to global warming. It's largely largely due to solar activity, and there's not a thing we could do about it, Kali said. The polar caps on Mars are melting, and there's not an SUV or smokestack in sight. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Schmelting. So I did, I, did some, I did some search on uh, – searching around on uh, ice caps and Mars melting, and I came across um, 2005 data from NASA's Mars Global Surveyor and Odyssey missions revealed that the carbon dioxide ice caps near Mars' South Pole – has been diminishing for three summers in a row. Then I came across last year uh, an article about an article from a gentleman named Habibulo Abdusamatov. He's the head of space research at Saint Petersburg Pulkovo Astronomical Observatory in Russia. His his whole shtick is that uh, the Mars data is proof. You know, since Mars is apparently going through some co- so, sort of warming trend, and the Earth. It's obvious that it's because of changes in the sun, and that and that is proof that it's sun that's causing the global warming, and it's not. There's no, you know, significant man man made component. What's the logical fallacy there? Well, you, I forget the exact name of it, but you're, you know, you're you're saying that because it's a hasty generalization, right? Yeah, he's generalizing from too too small a data set, right? Oh, Mars is warming at the same time the Earth is. Therefore, it's a solar effect. It's everything in the solar right. system is is warming. Um, it's also 
Uh, it's also a non sequitur because it's, um, or I guess a f- the specifically, he's establishing a false dichotomy, and you know, that there is solar warming or man-made global warming, and there can't be both. Well, in fact, that we were, we are coming to the end of a period where sol- solar warming was in fact happening. So we would expect that solar warming would it would be happening at the end elsewhere in the solar system. But that does not mean that there can't also be man-made global warming factored in on top of that. And as you know, this as we we get to the end of that cycle and we go into a period more. A downtrend in uh, in terms of uh, the solar contribution, solar forcing, as it were, um, to uh, to global temperatures. You know, it'll probably offset the man-made forcing a bit, which is a good thing, actually. But we'll see. I mean, the thing is, there's multiple trends superimposed on top of each other, and the fact that there are other trends and other sources of warming in no way means that there isn't man-made forcing of, of global warming. And some extra details um, from what from what I could tell, the conventional theory. Uh, is that climate changes on Mars can be explained primarily by small alterations in the planet's orbit and tilt and, and not by changes in the sun. Um, all, pan- all planets experience uh, some wobbles as they make, you know, as they, during their journey around the sun. Earth, Earth does the same thing. Uh, it's known as the uh, Milankovitch cycle, and they, they occur on timescales around 20,000 to 100,000 years. And Mars, al- Mars also has no large moon like we do, which makes the wobbles much larger and the climate swings much greater as well. So uh, there's no need to resort to... Uh, you know, to to the fact that the sun is causing this when there's there's there much more reasonable explanations. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is one tiny slice of the whole global warming controversy, and I do think this is a complex set of data. But this is one of those arenas where um, I don't feel like I have enough of a mastery of the actual detailed science that I you know feel free to have my own opinion about it. My position is that. My opinion is probably not better than the consensus of scientific opinion, and I really don't see any compelling reason to distrust the consensus on global warming, which which is you know that uh, there is a man-made component to it. But it is a, it is one of the more politically charged issues that we deal with, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get a slew of emails from people who don't like global warming um, just because of that comment. But there it is. I don't like global warming either. I'm just trying to, I don't know, identify with them before they start sending the angry emails. <laughs> okay. One more one more uh, email before we go on to science or fiction. This one comes from Arthur Ville from Australia, and Arthur writes, Joe Falciatano, 12, began calling himself Magneto Man <laughs> last year after his teachers concluded <laughs> that his presence could crash the school computers. I have another name for him, actually. Can this story be legit? And if so, what could cause it? Hmm. Now, I'll say off the bat, I don't buy this at all, but for multiple reasons. You read through the story, and there's lots of examples. Essentially, this this kid um, has had a lot of bad luck with computers. They tend to misbehave when he's using them or when he's just around. Now, if you read through the story, what it sounds suspiciously like confirmation bias that once the notion that there was some effect that this kid was having that computers were misbehaving around him that confirmation bias searching for confirming examples and ignoring disconfirming examples took hold and 
the rest is is the stuff of legends, as they say, right? This is how these kinds of stories develop. It's exactly the same as somebody thinking they're quote unquote lucky, although there may actually be a psychological effect at play there. But oftentimes, it's just people once they think that they're lucky because they happen to have a string of good luck by random chance, then they then confirmation bias just reinforces that belief. Um, part of the reason why I say that in this specific case is, uh, one, is if you look at all the examples that are given, a lot of them don't really seem to have anything to do with each other. There isn't a consistent effect here. It's just sort of anything anomalous that happens gets blamed on this kid. Also, a lot of the things they point to seem to be more of um, like a software problem, not the kind of hardware problem you would expect from static electricity uh. or some kind of phys- physical effect, right? So one uh, example was um, he might be in Microsoft Word and suddenly he would be unable to change the font. Unable to change the font? How is that an electrostatic effect or magnetic effect? That's just a software misbehaving thing. Maybe the kid doesn't know how to use the computer very well. Maybe they're using Vista. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And and Steve, I want to point out, though, uh, just to briefly correct one thing, is that it's not fair really to compare this to the idea of good luck, uh, because that's not necessarily just confirmation bias. Although confirmation bias has something to do with people who think that they're lucky. People who think they're lucky, a lot of studies show that they actually are quote-unquote lucky, meaning that they take advantage of more opportunities, and um, people who think that they're unlucky tend to be more pessimistic and tend to miss opportunities that they could otherwise take advantage of. Uh, Richard Wiseman has done a lot of research on that, and people are interested oh, yeah, in check that. out his book, The Luck Factor, on that. Right. No, you're absolutely right, and that, that's actually what I meant when I said that there's a, there's a psychological factor to luck, but in right. addition, it's confirmation bias. So I agree with you. That's what I was referring to. But but thanks for, thanks for that clarification. So, but confirmation bias is again is a very powerful cognitive you know uh, factor that could make you know really could make you believe almost anything. It's just you once you start cherry picking and selecting and and. Um, selectively noticing and remembering bits of information, it could make almost any belief seem very compelling. And I, this is a read the story that we link to because it really is a good, in my opinion, a very good example of it. The other th- reason why I don't buy this is because there's just no physiological mechanism by which somebody would just be producing static electricity or have more static electricity than somebody else. Maybe the shoes that you wear would do it, or something like that, or you know, if you slide your feet across the, the wool carpet when you walk across it, those kind of things. Um, but static electricity also, I don't wouldn't have this kind of effect on a computer, right? I mean, Bob or Jay, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like you're not going to start having font problems in Word if you get a little st- static discharge no, off no, your fingertips, no. right? I mean, that doesn't I make mean, any that, sense. That, that, no, I mean, unless every computer in the school is behaving in the same way, and you know, it's the, the guy. The guy's effect isn't proven. It shows that everyone in the room with him as you know is having a problem understanding the way computers work. It's just a ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous statement. But no, and you can have a static charge and touch your computer, and, and if the computer's grounded properly, it's not going to do anything. I mean, right. the static discharge. Um, remember all the static that would come off of a CRT monitor. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, the, you know, give it up. No, just it's bullshit, and it's obviously see through. Yeah, and I, I have an anecdote about magnetic fields and CRT monitors. Oh, um, good. Our, e, our EMG, I know you've got have, to gotta have one of these. Our EMG <laughs> lab happens to sit right above the MRI suite 
in the hospital. Mm. And mm. the CRT, this is now going back a few years when we had a CRT monitor. Now we have all LCD. But the CRT monitors, which are susceptible to magnetic fields, um, you could actually see the magnetic field being produced by the MRI scan. And you would get this rainbow scintillating effect across the monitor. Kind of a wavy. And if you turn cool. the if you turn the monitor around, you could actually move it through, you know, the magnetic field and see and see it. As you did that, it was, it was actually quite annoying. Um, now they shield it better, and the and the effect doesn't appear to be a, a factor for the LCD monitors. But again, they're not describing anything like this with this kid. Again, they're just describing these kind of random computer anomalies. You could also imagine, and they, and they kind of refer to these kind of episodes happening in this article, something happens, something anomalous happens, and then somebody says, oh, is Joe around? Oh, yeah, there he is across the room. It must be him. Oh, L- literally, that's the kind of confirmation bias that's going on with this story. So ultimately, this is all about human psychology and not superpowers. That's correct. That's a good summary, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Or non-superpowers, in fact. And you know, if that was your superpower, how freaking lame is that? The right. font doesn't work. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> you can, er- you can bulk erase. Power. I can bulk erase tapes. That would be pretty cool if you could just blank out hard drives. That's that would be a neat power. But you know, there's a movie about that now, right? Yeah. Be, be yeah. kind. Rewind. Yeah. I think that's probably where this is coming from. Right, 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 right. I mean, that's at least something, right? I mean, wiping out um, hard drives and, and tapes or whatever. But just, you know, having font problems in Word, I mean, that, Jay, I agree, that's like the lamest power ever. <laughs> it's not quite up there with uh. Salinity Man, the, the Scientology <laughs> powers, or yeah. Hunger Man. Oh, that guy was yeah. Yeah. Hunger. hunger. Yeah. <laughs> I sense thirst. We must move this way. You know, also another another fun thing that would probably get tired quick, but it would be cool if you could instantly make somebody's, uh, you know, computer play like really loud, nasty porn, like while they're at work, just walk by and bing. Oh, there are oh, viruses wow. that do that. Yeah, I there put that on a coworker's computer once. It was hysterical oh, for right. me. I mean, yeah, for, right for you. It popped up like a little male stripper every ten minutes or so. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Do a little dance. It was kind of awesome. Well, let's move on, shall we? No. Can we? Oh. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Although this week, we're going to do something a little different because I'm actually on vacation and Bob is prepping a lot of the show for me. So Bob is going to do the science or fiction this week. This is the second time that you're, you're picking up the science or fiction mantle, right, Bob? I believe second or, or third. Okay. And and I will be put into the the role of guesser this time. Wow! So Steve, if you if you win this one, your average could go way up, way up. I'm like yeah. zero and three at this point. Okay, I've got a theme. I actually have a theme. No, the theme is the letter C. Autonomics. The C word. Gotcha. Uh, okay. The C word. We are dealing with caterpill- caterpillars, cannibalism, and colds. Okay. Mm. Okay. Number one, the a new study shows a moth can remember. What it learned as a caterpillar. Number two, cannibalism may have killed Neanderthals. Neanderthals who practiced cannibalism may have spread a mad cow-like disease that weakened and reduced populations, thereby contributing to their extinction, according to a new theory. And number three, influenza viruses bind 
together more readily in cold temperatures, which protects them. This finding could explain why winter is the flu season, U.S. researchers, researchers report. And I think we Steve, Steve, go first. Yeah. You want me to go first, huh? I sure do. Well, first of all, we want to say you did a great job. These are all highly plausible. I'll say new study shows a moth can remember what it learned as a caterpillar. That I mean, the, the only reason why you would even think to guess, uh, to, to question whether or not they could, is because caterpillars go through a rather significant metamorphosis. And, uh, you know, the, the so called imaginal disks, which contain the, the DNA that manifests the moth, right? So you, basically, the caterpillar turns I can, to goo. I can neither confirm nor deny any of this, but. Yeah, the, the caterpillar turns to goo, and then, you know, the imaginal disks turn into the moth. So the question is could enough structure survive that process that the memories. Would uh, that the that the moth would have some memories? Jesus, Steve, what what do you not know about? It's plausible either way. Steve is playing the part of Bob today. <laughs> cannibalism may have killed Neanderthals. Neanderthals who pr- who practiced cannibalism may have spread a mad cow like disease. You know that actually was happening. The uh, kuru was being spread by um, the ritualistic eating of. The brains of one's ancestor and sharing the scrotum. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, the, the ritualistic brain eating. So I guess it's possible, you know, that 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 they discovered evidence that Neanderthals had a um, a kuru or a mad cow-like disease as well. Uh, influenza virus binds together more readily in cold temperatures, which protects them, and that could explain the winter flu season. Um, I don't know that we need that to explain the winter flu season. I think just patterns of, of behavior are probably enough. Uh, but again, it's not implausible. Yeah, huh? And I, I do not remember, I have not had, I've been not reading a lot of science news this week while I'm on vacation, so I haven't read any Good. of these. So I'm just, I'm just going to have to flat out guess. So I will say that Neanderthal cannibalism is the, uh, is the curveball, and that one is the fake. Okay. Rebecca. Well, Steve just took like 10 years to get through that. So I'm going to get to the point and say that I think that the flu viruses binding together sounds suspicious to me. Because as Steve said earlier, I don't think we really need that to explain why winter is the flu season. So, yeah, that one is the fiction, I think. Okay, Jay. Uh... I just I can't see how they can test a caterpillar that turned into a moth remembers anything. That one just seems outer limits to me. The cannibalism with the Neanderthals, I agree with Steve. Like, sure, you know, food's running out. You know, I, it makes perfect sense. I could see that happening. Uh, and the influenza virus binding together. You know, I don't, I just, you know, I don't know enough about this. And I, it, it doesn't sound implausible to me. I just, uh, if, if number one is true, Bob, I'm really going to question the study, even if you, even if you did read it, if the one about the moths is true, I'm going to, I'm going to go with that one as the fake. Okay. Evan. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. How, how do you measure what a moth can remember as it learned as a caterpillar? What, what did they do? Did they pay attention to what the caterpillar was doing until it turned into a moth and then see yeah. if the moth went back to kind of relive some of the, what where it was <laughs> right? or what it was what doing as a caterpillar. I'm, I'm just, I'm really baffled as to how they, how they structure that. Uh, Unless the so. caterpillar turns into Mothra. 
I didn't think it's probably just either affinity or aversion. Ah, you're some, done, Steve. Some <laughs> stimulus. <laughs> Steve, you're done. <laughs> done. I know, Steve. Have you never played this game before? I mean, well, that's not the way it it's works. Been a, it's been a couple of years. I probably uh, would have gone oh, with the moth. Oh, like you guys never throw comments out from the peanut gallery. Steve, we look, don't. We're very us. good. Just but based on Steve's comments, I'll instead say <laughs> that the influenza virus is the fiction story. So I'll agree with Rebecca. It's a good philosophy in general. Let me roll my dice here, see which number I'm going to go with. Oh, okay, two. I miss Gary. Cannibalism may have killed Neanderthals. That is science. Nice. Yay. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Kept my perfect record, getting everyone wrong. <laughs> you suck, yep. Steve. <laughs> Boy, you really okay, blow Neanderthals. Yeah. Well, I know, you took like 10 minutes to come to that wrong conclusion. Jeez, Steve. At least Bob gets some right, right, Rebecca? At least Bob... <laughs> I know. Bob <laughs> yeah. takes six years. But I, don't, at least I don't have a lot of right. practice playing this game, right? Oh, wow. That's true, and you're on vacation. All right. And- All right. Enough whining. Let's go, let's go through what actually the actual real science is saying about this. I have here from the study that the theoretical model could resolve the longstanding mystery of what Neanderthals, uh, which emerged about 250,000 years ago, and they disappeared about 30,000 years ago. Simon Underdown, a lecturer in the anthropology department at Oxford Brookes University, studied a well-documented tribal group, the Foray, F-O-R-E, of Papua New Guinea, who practiced ritualistic cannibalism and linked that to what could have happened to the Neanderthals. Also, uh, there is evidence, uh, 100,000 to 120,000-year-old bones discovered at a cave in France suggest a group of Neanderthals defleshed the bones of at least six other individuals and then broke the bones apart with a hammer stone and anvil to remove the marrow and brains. Look at the bones. Okay, let's see. Wait, that's it? That's the evidence? That's... Um, summarizing. Steve, check out our... I was wondering if there was going to be any actual evidence of uh, any prion disease among the Neanderthals. Did they find anything in the, you know, that's pretty thin. It seemed they based it on the fact that they, um, yeah, it's, it seemed that the, the, the new, the Papua New Guinea group of people and, and the, um, the evidence of, uh, of cannibalism might be the two main pieces of his, of his evidence. Although, uh, ch- I'll send you the link. Check out, check out the article. But that's, those are the two things I gleaned from it. All right. Pretty speculative. Um, that seemed most relevant. I could have, I could have missed a bit that, yeah, that, that mentioned that, that, Evidence of actual prion disease, but but how are you going to find that? Um, that was my question. Find the evidence with fossils, yeah. That was okay. my question, right? Let's see. Now, my die is telling me to go to number one. Okay, new study shows a moth can remember what it learned as a caterpillar. That is science. Oh shit! The Georgetown, <laughs> Georgetown, <laughs> wow. yeah. The Georgetown researchers found that tobacco hornworm caterpillars could be trained to avoid particular odors delivered in association with a mild shock. So, Steve, you were right. And, uh, Evan, you should be thanking Steve. When adult moths emerged from a pupae of trained caterpillars, they also avoided the odors, showing that they retained their larval memory. The Georgetown University study is the first to demonstrate conclusively that associative memory can survive metamorphosis in... Lepidoptera, the order of insects that include moths and butterflies, and provokes new questions about the organization and persistence of the central nervous system during metamorphosis. So, very interesting stuff there. I, you know, that's um, bullshit. And that means uh, that means I'm right. I think. <laughs> Heaven. That, yeah, right? yeah. That means so. um, influenza virus. Influenza virus viruses bind together more readily in cold temperatures, which protect them. That is fiction. 
the actual the actual quote, the actual science here is the influenza virus coat themselves in fatty material that hardens and protects them in cold temperatures. Mm-hmm. And a, some more details. Let's see. Experts have long pondered why flu and other respiratory viruses spread more in winter. No one explanation, such as people staying indoors more or the destructive effect of the sun's radiation in summer has fully explained it. So uh, you were... Rebecca, you were a little wrong in that regard, but you still guessed right. The new I'm report right. published in the journal Nature Chemical Biology could lead to new ways to prevent and treat flu, says NICHD director Dwayne Alexander. So it's a so it's a fatty shell around the virus that uh, that that hardens in the winter, which prolongs its stay outside of the respiratory tract of of humans. And uh, it says here that the butter-like coating melts in the respiratory tract, allowing the virus to infect cells. Mm, so that that hard butter. shell, it's like butter, allows it to. St- <laughs> yeah, that's that's what allows it to survive so long outside the body. Whereas in the summer, since it's warm out, it would it would die more readily, and it's much less chance for people to catch it. When, you know, after it, it's dead. So because it survives so long, um, that's one of the reasons. Uh, it seems that uh, that. That influenza is so nasty in the winter because it's uh, it can survive outside the body for much longer. So, good job, Bob. I like that. So, good job, well everybody. Um, good every, job, I mean, uh, everyone, everyone selected a different one, pretty much. So, I think that's a good. Uh, yeah, you did a good job, Bob. It's the best you, I could hope for. Okay, that's always yeah. that's always a good sign when you when you totally split all three. And Steve, it took it took it takes longer than you you might think. Oh, I'll read a few things and select these. It takes a while. I spent literally. You know, almost an hour just going through all these things, trying to figure out, um, you know, you know, what I could change and which ones sounded somewhat reasonable or, or not maybe not plausible. Mm-hmm. So it's tricky. It's not as easy as you might think mm-hmm. to put this together. So kudos to you, Steve, for doing this every damn week. Yeah. I'll say, be you better be careful if you do too good a job. I'll make you take it over from me. <laughs> no, Steve, because then you'd have to get it wrong every week. That's true. Yeah, that. it's true. You also can't be schmarmy to us, Steve, which you, you'll miss. I know. I, I do love the schmarminess. I live for that each week. <laughs> well, um, Jay. Yeah. Do you have a quote for us this week? Well, do we want to make a correction based from last week? Oh, that's right. Evan, you screwed up last week and you got to make a correction. What was that? <laughs> Excuse me. I, okay. <laughs> Uh, I'll clear. I will clarify last week's quote. Yeah, I okay, love so that word clarify. Yeah, clarify covers up a lot of sins. Okay, it's not exactly John McCain talking about autism here. So, <laughs> so what happened last week when we came up with a quote for last to end last week's episode was that um, I had opened the book Flim Flam and went right to the uh, end of the introduction. And, of course, read the quote, which I assumed was uh, written by, uh, by James Randi. And, t- and it turns out that it was not. It was Isaac Asimov who wrote the introduction for Flim Flam. So uh, we had several uh, listeners write us and you know, made us aware of that, uh, of that correction, and we are officially now making that correction. So last week's quote was, in fact, uh, Isaac Asimov. So we stand corrected. So, Jay, are you, do you have a, another quote for us this week? Well, yeah, since we screwed up last week's quote, I will, uh, I will give a proper Isaac Asimov quote and give him the proper credit. Mr. Asimov said, There is a single light of science, and to brighten it anywhere is to brighten it everywhere. Actually, I think that's a Randy quote. <laughs> <laughs> you know, crap. Rebecca, there was a dramatic pause after my quote. 
I know. I, we, know. We were, I stole it from my joke. You, you stepped all over it. <laughs> we were all waiting for it. Bathed I did it on purpose. <laughs> and, um, do it, Jay. Do it. No, I don't know. I just don't feel it. No. Come on. I feel uh, it. I'm waiting. Hey. The moment is fading. <laughs> no, it's not. It's there. <laughs> no, I'll, it's do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Isaac Asimov. No, Rebecca, you can't, uh. you can't rescue it now. You, you ruined it. You can't bring it back. Well, thank you, uh, Jay. We got fans requesting Yeah, this. that was kind of like giving, giving mouth-to-mouth to some roadkill or something. We had fans <laughs> oh. specifically requesting Jay stop it. <laughs> That's really? true. No, no I didn't did. see yes. any of that. Did we? Don't, yes, we don't did. Don't exaggerate. It was one fan. What'd they say? <laughs> Please, God, stop it. <laughs> but when did they become so for an the it? Love it's of just <laughs> a stupid little thing that I do. Like, what's the deal? Like, who cares? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a good point. Right. The fans care, Jay. The fans. That's what's important. That's why we're here. Okay. Jay, well, keep, I keep doing do it, it, Jay. That particular person. Jay, wait, wait. I keep will, doing th- it. This is the episode that I won't do it for that particular person. They can always uh, know that this episode, it wasn't done for them. Retroactively. This episode. Then they'll, then they'll wish, never know. I wish we could actually remember the person's name. So that oh, I do. It was, it was that guy. Oh, oh that the guy with the guy. hair and the eyes. Yeah, right. him. I have a small announcement mm-hmm. that should be fun. I have started up a Boston Skeptics in the Pub, uh, which is a monthly gathering uh, based on one that happens every month in London. Uh, my friend Sid runs it over there and he encouraged me to start one here in Boston it's a social event it's a lot of fun skeptics and scientists and critical thinkers they come out to the pub and meet and drink and there's always going to be a special guest to do a talk and for our first uh, event which is Monday March 24th at the Asgard in Central Square, Cambridge, we're going to have Mike the Mad Biologist, who is a science blogger for Seed Magazine. Hmm. Uh, you can find out more by going to bostonskeptics.com. Excellent. It's going to be a good time. Always good to have more skeptical events. Can't have too many. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining me all again this week. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks for episode. Uh, votes away from being on the second page of all of the podcast on dig and it's just you know meaning <laughs> meaningless positioning but dig it that's kind of sad it's important <laughs> go page two and i'd like Yay. to say again i really missed you guys i'm really glad to be <laughs> home um i'm going to definitely wait no at the at the beginning well, of the show you said you were miserable to be I, home. I, I, you know i instant You've message that tune. to you in secret that I'm, the weather here just sucks so bad i said that didn't i yes you said it on. You actually said it out loud. Oh, I said other nasty things. To you. you said right. it That's for right. all of our <laughs> listeners to hear. Um, I d- just listen. This yeah. is so pathetic, but yes, I'm <laughs> going to contact everyone uh, that's going to help me with the new website very soon. I promise. I'm just you know <laughs> overwhelmed. And Jay, one of your first projects we is to make a book review page because we had a lot of requests mm-hmm. to post up all of our book re- our skeptical book reviews, and we will do that as part of this wonderful website upgrade that Jay is going to be doing with all of his volunteers. You know, that's a good idea, Steve. Any listeners that have yes, some indeed. cool suggestions on just things that we could do with the website um, and also with, uh, with Mike's SGU fan site, if you have any good ideas or, or anything, just please email us from the site. We'd love to hear your, your ideas. Thank you. Well, thanks again, everyone, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Yeah.